Good morning. My name is Zach Lefevre, and I would like to start out with an apology for my voice. I've been sick for the last few days. I think I'll be all right to get through this, but uh, bear with me a little bit. Um, let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today in faith to study your word. As we do so, let our guard fall a little bit. Let our minds open a little bit. And let our expectations rise a little bit. Also, with all the women on retreat this weekend, uh, we pray that their time together is enlightening and nourishing to the soul. In your name we pray. Amen. If you'd like, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. quick note on the title of today's sermon. It's from John Adams. The full quote is, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. That is from John Adams' argument in defense of the soldiers in the Boston Massacre trials. Maybe you already knew that. I didn't. If you'd like to learn more, I suggest you talk to our resident historian, Joe Miller. But today, I'm going to talk to you about work, which may upset some of you. After all, it's the weekend, and when attending church, the workplace is hopefully the furthest thing from our minds. Particularly, I'm going to talk to you about my job, which I believe is uniquely equipped to analyze this text. And this begs the question, who here knows what I do for a living? Raise your hand. All right. Let me give you a hint. My job title is Senior Six Sigma Black Belt for Transformation. Did that help? Yeah. Usually I just tell people I'm a project manager. It's quicker and avoids questions at parties. But let me give you a quick version of what I do. I help my company solve internal process problems. 
This is done through a structured methodology that includes extensive definition and measurement of our problems. The measurement part is key. It's how we uncover the truth, no matter how unpleasant. And when done right, it brings the facts of a situation to light. We can then make decisions based on those facts instead of some perceived truth. An example, one perceived truth I ran into was in our payroll department last year. The leader of the department always said that our payroll was very complex, and so it required special customized software, as well as some very particular processes in order to function correctly. Once I was finally allowed to poke around in the department, the realization was made that we were the ones making ourselves complex. We found that if we would alter just a few things about the way we work, we wouldn't need such special software, and the employees wouldn't have to spend so much time on manual tasks that didn't add any value. To get into how we approach something like this, I'm going to talk about operational definition. I know we haven't had any football to watch for a couple of weeks, but you probably can retain enough for us to have this discussion. How do you know in the NFL when you got a touchdown? Okay, this, right? The ref goes like this. How does the ref know to go like this? Cross the line. What has to cross the line? The ball has to cross the line. Has to cross the plane of the goal. So how much of the ball has to cross? Any, just any part, right? Any part, okay. What if... It has to be held by a person. They can't just like toss it across. Oh, we got a touchdown. Okay. So it has to be carried across. Okay. Can you, do, do you have to be within the bounds of the sidelines? Okay. Is that the only way you can get a touchdown? Touchdown. Right? But, it, but it, it's, that's still crossing the plane, right? Okay, receiver. So that's something different. So we can throw it in, right? It doesn't have to just cross with somebody carrying it. We can throw it in. So what happens when we throw it in? They have to catch it, okay? What does that mean? Control. Both, both feet have to be inbounds after you catch it, maintain control, right? Has to be caught by the right team. Exactly. No, exactly. What if there was a foul on the play? Who's the foul on? Right? Which team was the foul on? As if it was on the team that scored, or I mean, against the team that didn't score, it would probably be declined. All right. So, for illustration, um, without those very specific rules, we'd have trouble scoring a game. So we create a rule set so the ref knows when to blow the whistle and go like this. 
It's the same thing for a foul. The ref blows the whistle. And that whistle or flag lets you know something happened that you need to pay attention to. So the next question. How do you know when you have sinned? Guilt, okay? Your, your, your inner moral compass goes off. Okay, anybody else? Somebody told you? You said. What? Intentional, okay. But it's a little harder to define, to put that rule set down. And there's nobody to blow the whistle. Jesus blows the whistle. But God doesn't call a timeout to go over the play with you again every time you sin, right? If you sin, life carries on, especially if we're the only one who knows. If we commit a sin and nobody else notices... I agree, one of the best indicators we have is our own guilt. But I would not describe my personal guilt as a finely tuned measurement device. If no referee calls a particular foul in the NFL for an entire season, players will start to commit that foul more often. They will get more comfortable with committing that foul until it's just part of the way they play. If you waste a little time at work and get away with it, you're likely to do it again. I myself have installed the Chrome web browser on my computer at work, even though I know it is against company policy. I'm such a rebel, right? But they only want us to use Internet Explorer. But I like Chrome better, and there's nothing stopping me, so I do it. Likewise, we get comfortable with a certain amount of sin. Over time, the guilt wears off because we keep on getting away with it and nothing bad happens. Just like the workplace. That payroll department got used to their complexity to the point where they didn't even see it anymore. And just like anything in the workplace, oh, when you ask them, when you ask that payroll department, why do you do it this way, they respond, we've always done it this way. It's just the way we do it. This is how we operate. <clears throat> One of the tools I use in my job is something called the seven wastes. We sometimes refer to it as the sins of the workplace. And just like anything in the workplace that we try to remember, we have an acronym to help us. My job is chock full of acronyms. Dot wimp stands for defects, overproduction, Transportation, 
waiting, inventory, motion, and processing. Seven areas that we find wastes in our processes. And it's just a handy way of remembering it. But the point is, all of this equals waste. And my job is to use facts to expose these wastes of the workplace. These facts are sometimes already believed to be true, but often fly in the face of what some business leader has believed. They challenge the current way of thinking, and they make people nervous. I want to say that again. Facts make people nervous. Why should facts make management nervous? After all, I'm just trying to help. I am simply providing information that they can use to improve business performance. So what do they have to worry about? And the answer is, they don't want to look bad. Oftentimes they are afraid that if I expose the inefficiencies in their process, they will look like they don't know what they're doing. It was a real struggle to get myself into that payroll department. I was told anything to keep me out. I was told that I wasn't authorized to see the data, because it is important, you know, people's payroll information. I was told that they had just made some improvements, so there wasn't much opportunity right now. I was told it was too complex. There's nothing you can do about it. And this leader was protective out of fear. And not to wander into the territory of a business conference presentation, but this is incredibly unhealthy for the workplace. It's actually when managers and employees take the facts of a situation as a reason to make things better and a reason to change that a business performs better and ultimately people live better lives. So are we afraid of sin in the same way? Are we afraid of having our sins exposed? Sure we are. Especially the big ones. But the little ones are dangerous too. The little sins that we have grown comfortable with. They're not that big of a deal, so why worry? Nobody needs to know about them. Nothing bad ever happens from them. In order to illustrate this, I'm going to lean on another element of my job, statistics. I promise I will not get into any statistical terms like standard deviation or kurtosis. I'll stick to the main concepts. So we're going to look at a normal distribution. sometimes called a bell curve. 
And some examples of, uh, of the bell curve, you may have heard of uh, grading on a curve. <clears throat> Which was like when I was uh, taking engineering class in college and I'd get a 40 out of 100 on a test and I still got a B minus. Uh, another place that that uh, shows up, it, it shows up a lot in real world data. And uh, we would look at like human height. We have an awful lot of people that are between five feet and six feet. Right? Lots of people here in the middle between five feet and six feet. There aren't that many people that are six six or four six. But there are those people. They're just sort of out here on the edge and um, occur less commonly. So for our normal distribution, what we're going to graph is acts, works, deeds, whatever, stuff that we do. And our text today <clears throat> says that there are two types of actions. Actions that are toward God's glory and actions that promote the self. And if we have a continuum from something that is an act in extreme toward God's glory or something that is extremely toward ourselves, and somewhere in the middle, it might get a little murky. Tough to tell the difference. And theoretically, somewhere in the middle, it crosses over, where you've got everything on the left side is something that's towards God's glory. Everything on the right side is toward the self. Where do you think we act most of the time? Self. Okay. But do we always act on that side? No. So if we looked at that distribution, some of it would be over here, right? That was kind of my hypothesis as well. So I was thinking our graph would look something like this. You've got the bulk over toward the self, but there's actions over here. majority of our lives is spent in the middle, where the difference between God's glory and our selfishness is difficult to discern. In preparation for this morning, I thought to myself, what is an example of something that is just to the right 
of that crossover point. <laughs> well, I came up with something, and now it's time for light public confession. Two weeks ago, I was walking down the steps to the church basement to drop off Georgia. And as you walk down the stairs, the people in the basement are revealed to you from the bottom up, starting at the feet, right? So about halfway down the stairs, I noticed a woman kneeling on the floor, setting up for kids' Bible study. I thought, as your brain does in a fraction of a second, wow, that woman has a great butt. I wonder who it is. Now, some of the men in the room may be thinking, boy, if he was talking about my wife, if he was looking at my wife, I'm going to come up there and slug him. <laughs> well, you can all relax. Because as I finished walking down the stairs and saw the whole picture, I realized it was, in fact, my wife. Once you hear the end of the story, it seems pretty innocent. After all, who can blame me for appreciating my own wife's rear end? But for that fraction of a second, it wasn't completely innocent, which means it was a little sinful. awful lot of things in life are a little sinful. We sin all the time. But we don't always realize or acknowledge it. Last week, Kendall talked about all the ways we judge others. She talked about snap judgment, short-term judgment, and long-term judgment. And it's just over here. I mean, it's these little things that we do all the time. Recently, uh, I purchased a pair of headphones, and I spent, I can't tell you how many hours on the internet looking up reviews of these headphones and comparisons, and it was really just materialism and me coveting this thing, but we don't always think of it like that. And what could I have done with all of those hours that I spent sitting at the computer looking at these headphones? Each of those hours could have been spent on this side, but they weren't. They were spent right here. And all those little lusts that we have. In our time of prayer at church, uh, not this morning, but often when we read from the Book of Common Prayer, reading off the projector, uh, we start with one called morning prayer. In it, we confess our sins in thought, word, and deed. And I'm sure most of us only say that at the most once a week when we're here in church. But it's not called the once a week prayer. It's called the morning prayer. And that means to me is there's opportunity 
to confess our sins to God every day. Every morning, and that is because we sin every day. The stubborn fact that we don't want to admit or have exposed is that every person in this room is going to sin every day for the rest of your life. This is where God's patience comes into play. He's not patient with us because he is accepting of our sin. He is patient with us in order to allow us to come to him. In fact, the verse before today's reading, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, reads, Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? As a bit of a side note, how often do we really confess our sins to God? My personal prayers often miss that goal. At dinner, God, thank you for this food and thank you for our family. Public prayer here in church. God, watch over so-and-so in their time of sickness, loss, or confusion. In the green room before church, God, let us worship you this morning with our whole hearts. All of these are examples of good and important prayer. But they rarely go like this for me. God, I screwed up today. I have sinned in thought, word, and deed. I confess to you that I knew what I was doing. I did it anyway. I'm sorry. I think that I rarely pray like that because I figure God already knows, right? What good is telling him about it going to do? But confession isn't for God. It's for us. It's our acknowledgement that we did something wrong. It's also a way of doing what we're called to do in today's scripture, to have persistence in doing good. I think even this parallels the workplace. If you make a mistake at work and ignore it or even try to cover it up, you will be much worse off than if you go to your boss and say, boss, I made a mistake. This risk I took didn't pay off. Here's the situation I got us in, and here's what I'm going to do about it. If you do that and have a boss that's worth anything, you will be seen as a person who fixes problems, not as a person who causes them. In the workplace, every organization, every department, every job is going to have some amount of sin or waste in it every day. There will always be opportunity for improvement. 
I don't necessarily mind that because it gives people like me a lot of job security. But the same thing is true when we deal with sin. There will always be room for improvement. We may not be able to put it in terms of a metric like, uh, well, my daily sin average is down 37% over the same period last year. But what we can do is better ourselves every day. What we can do is shift our curve and shift our center more toward God's glory. And God doesn't expect perfection. Even if we act in God's glory, whether we read the Bible every day or we help a child learn a new concept, we're there from our friends when they need us. So even when we get some X's over on this side of the board, we fulfill those acts imperfectly. As our text says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. This distribution up here is a struggle. This right here is a struggle. And it will remain so until our mortal death. The important thing is that we maintain a heartfelt commitment to God in the face of this. And that we struggle. <clears throat> that we struggle persistently. It's important that we pay attention to all the waste in our lives and act daily to eliminate it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your loving kindness that you give us in return for our sin-filled lives. Help us to not be blind to these facts, but to accept them as a reason to change. Thank you for our daily opportunities to act in your glory. Amen.